Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, Power to Reconcile. Ever since Eden, there has been a great chasm carved between God and man, and between man and man. How then is there to be a reconciliation and correction to these relationships? It can be found in nothing else than the cross of Jesus Christ, which alone can allow God and sinners to be reconciled. Please contact us at www.ellerslie.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This is, this is one of the most important messages I think that I've ever encountered. And you'll notice that it's similar to a message, the basic students, that you guys received this week. You know, it was Thursday. It's called Power to Forgive. Yeah. This is a little duet, a uh, little harmony line. But it's a very specific aspect of the Christ walk that many of us have not been tutored in and trained in. May we as the church of Jesus Christ not miss this. For those of you that are hearing it for the first time, don't miss this. This is a tool that can change our life. Power to reconcile. Most of us, I think, would not necessarily think that it takes power to reconcile. We would say it takes willingness to reconcile. Isn't that how we reason? It doesn't take power to forgive. It takes willingness to forgive. It doesn't take power to love. It just takes willingness to love. Well, that's a misnomer. Actually, it does, because to reconcile is to do the work of God, and you're not him. To love is to do what only God can do, and you're not God. To forgive, in the manner of divine forgiveness, is to do something that only God is capable of. Only God can forgive sins. It's not like a quote from the Bible. Not a quote we oftentimes rehearse when we're thinking about someone coming up to us and saying, you should forgive them. Only God can forgive. In the truest divine sense, that's true. But then we say, well, yes, but there's also human forgiveness. Well, I know there's human forgiveness. But human forgiveness isn't God forgiveness. And if we forgive others the way that God forgives us, it changes the world. But if we forgive each other the way humans forgive... It leads to a blankness of soul and a dullness and a deadness of soul where, yeah, you're not holding bitterness and resentment, but you're also not loving them. You don't care about them anymore. If you've forgiven anyone in a human way, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to hold that against them. All right? I'm going to move past that. But there's still a lifeless spot in your soul. And when their name comes up or someone even mentions a behavior that they did and you're like, eh, it sounds like them. Ah, same thing they did to me. And then you're like, oh, no, but I forgive them. I forgive them. See, you're very sensitized to their issues. Now, you're trying not to think about them as your exercise of soul. I'm not meditating upon that. Not meditating upon that. But you're proving in and through your lack of love that truly this wasn't divine forgiveness. Because when Jesus forgives us, how does he treat us afterwards? Does he have a blankness and a deadness of soul towards us? Like, eh, just stay on that side of heaven, Okay. I'm over here, you're on that side. If we just don't cross each other's paths for all eternity, we'll be fine. That's not how God forgives us. God forgives us and then becomes an agent, an instrument of blessing to rescue us, to see that we live, to see that his mercies are realized in our life. But many of us have never functioned in the, the practice of Christianity in the divine sense. We've esteemed it, and we want it, and we attempt to emulate it, but we aren't God. 
Christianity is taking mere humans and filling them with God ability. It's called grace. And that grace is power. And so we've been given a power to love. We've been given a power to forgive. We've been given a power to reconcile. And so let's take whatever your understanding of reconciliation is up to this point and let's realize there's probably a human variety of reconciliation and now let's begin to explore the divine version of reconciliation. The parable of the fig tree. In the preparation of this message, I had to study fig trees. And as I go through this, you'll say, what in the world do fig trees and reconciliation have to do with each other? My thoughts exactly. What in the world, why in the world does God keep bringing up fig trees? And when I was studying reconciliation, it even seems like a funny theme to melt in. It's like, fig trees? You know that God is always bringing up fig trees? I don't know how often he talks about apple trees or plum trees or orange, orange trees. Yeah, there's orange trees. I don't think he mentions orange trees. Uh, and yet, fig trees... But throughout Scripture, there's this concept of a fig tree. In fact, this term, that there's a parable of the fig tree. And so as I go through this, you're going to realize that fig trees matter to God. He uses them as a direct symbol of something, and I'd say that symbol is you. That symbol is how you ought to be. You see, God created fig trees to do something, to do something very specific. You see, he didn't just call them trees, He gave them a very special name, fig trees. And as a result, fig trees, if they are truly fig trees, do something very specific. They bear figs. And if a fig tree is not bearing figs, did you know that it's no longer a fig tree? It's just a tree with big leaves. And yes, you can call them fig leaves, but that's not a fig tree. You see, that isn't functioning as it ought to function. The same is true with our life as Christians. You see, I don't know if we could call it like there's fig Christians and there's Christians. In other words, God created us to be fig Christians. And, or maybe I should say it this way, fig people. That, that'd probably make it more, more sense. We have people and fig people. And you see, God intended us not to be just people, but to be fig people. To be people that bear something. We are meant to bear fruits, figs. And if we don't, we're no longer fig people, we're just people. And so as we go through this, I want the full weight of the reality of knowing that we are intended to bear fruit, and if we're not bearing fruit, we're not what we ought to be. The parable of the fig tree. So in Matthew 6.10, it talks about a kingdom coming. Now, this is part of the sample prayer that Jesus gives. But basically, we're to beckon forth a kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So this kingdom is supposed to come to this earth. And now many of us here that have studied at Ellerslie and have understood how prayer works, we know that Jesus purchased something, this kingdom, this reality, these promises. He rules. All things are under his feet. And that reality, that truth must be manifest in this earth. But it isn't just manifest in this earth first. It is manifest in the saints of God in this earth first. And so as a result... The kingdom, when it comes, is first shown in us. Then, ultimately, it will be shown to all the world. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But guess who bends their knee first? We do. So the kingdom is foreshadowed in our response. So I'm going to call this an awakening has begun. 
How do you know when a kingdom is coming? Do you know that Jesus actually answers that question? He says, you will know when my kingdom is coming. And then he gives the sign. You know what it is? It's called the parable of the fig tree. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, most of us in here could just shrug our shoulders and say, so? What's the big deal? Well, don't you realize that when the branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that it's time for figs to come. You see, in our lives, when the kingdom is coming, do you know that there's first a suppleness and a softness that is shown? And there's a greenness to the branch? And you know what's coming? Oh, guys, summer's coming. Fruit is going to be born. And so this is the evidence of how the kingdom of God is going to come in the end and how it comes in us now. Summer's coming. You can see it. And the more you've been around the body of Christ, you can see it. You're like, summer's coming. Fig season is coming. This is Jesus speaking. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. Okay, why is he even talking about that? Why does it matter? He's making a point. He's talking about something known as the kingdom of God. And as we move forward, you'll begin to realize how important this is. But fruit is required if a fig tree is truly to prove a fig tree. So there's a first evidence of the coming kingdom. There's a greenness. There's a readiness. Do you remember that parable of the the sower or the soils, however you want to say it, where the sower comes out and he's sowing seed, same seed, and it's landing on different soils. And there's one soil that actually takes it in with joy, but then it is choked out. You see, some of us can show a greenness and can actually begin to bear leaves and yet not prove a fig tree. Is that possible? Fruit is required if a fig tree is truly to prove a fig tree. If a fig tree does not bear fruit then that fig tree is just taking up space because God created fig trees for a very specific purpose. I know that sounds rude to non-fruit-bearing fig trees. But this is God's opinion on the matter, as I will soon relate to you, not Eric's. Matthew 3.8, it says, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. There's a concept in Scripture of bearing fruit. And it's associated in a strange way with something known as repentance. As we go through this, and as I begin to explain how reconciliation works, you're going to see that repentance is part of fruits. In fact, we could even say it this way. Oh, there's a fig. It's called repentance. If you do not have repentance, you're not a fig tree. It's a way of saying it. It's like, oh, there's there's a fig tree. It has big leaves. Is there repentance? I don't see any repentance. Huh. It must not be a fig tree. So there's no figs. It's not a fig tree. It's just a tree with big leaves that happens to look similar to a fig tree. Don't call a a tree a fig tree if it doesn't have figs. Don't call a Christian a Christian if they don't have figs. If they don't have the evidence of new life. Let's be very watchful how we start sticking out that term. This is God talking, not just Eric. I'm just passing along some stuff, but it doesn't come across too well, does it? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Oh, same exact scripture. Now look at this. This is a different reference. Matthew 3, 8. Now look at the next one. Luke 3, 8. Isn't that amazing? It's the exact same line. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Huh. Well, are we getting the point on that one? That's something you need to be doing. Have you ever had the feeling like, I don't know how to do that? Well, that's where we say the power 
to reconcile. You see, everything we're going to be talking about in this is dependent upon God Almighty. You can't just say, oh, excellent sermon, Eric. I really liked your points. I'm going to put that into practice. What you do is you humble yourself before the living God and say, God, you do it. You do it, and I'm in agreement with what you need to do. But I need the power to reconcile. They should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. It's the same concept of fruit. There needs to be repentance. You need to turn to God, and you need to then bear fruit that your repentance is real. You know that repentance is not considered real repentance if it doesn't bear fruit of a real change of life? If your life looks the same after you've repented, you didn't repent. That's not real repentance. Real repentance actually changes the course of a life. It alters the way that life is working. We'll go into that in just a second. Luke 13, 6 through 9. This is Jesus again. And Jesus seems to be referring once again to a fig tree. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his garden. And he came seeking on it and found none. So here's some guy who has a garden, and this man, of course, we could understand as God or Jesus, who has planted a fig tree, and he comes to his fig tree to check on it. What does the man who planted a fig tree expect to find on his fig tree? Well, let's find out. And he came seeking fruit on it. Oh, no. Oh, no. Don't tell me. And found none? What's going to happen? Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Listen to the conclusion. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? Lulp. All right. Uh, This is a parable that Jesus is relating. This isn't just some little thing Eric wanted to come up with a little story for you. This is Jesus stuff. But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Hmm. Well, let's let's keep going. Now, what we're seeing in this is that this owner, this man who planted a fig tree, comes to his fig tree and is expecting to find something. There's been an appeal that says, wait one more year. And I'll do some fertilization around it. But if there's no fruit then cut it down because I agree. This plant, this space in your vineyard is meant to house a tree that bears fruit, not just a tree with leaves that look as if it's alive. Now in the morning, this is again talking about Jesus, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. What an interesting statement. Do you guys know who Jesus Christ is? He's not just a man, a good moral prophet. He's God. It is an interesting thing to see. You know, so, so few words are actually used in Scripture to define the God of the universe. But the ones that are chosen are very purposeful. And it says, he was hungry. Isn't that an amazing thought to think that God has a design? There's something that God is desiring. And so where does he go when he's hungry? And, he, and, he, and seeing a fig tree by the road. Okay, uh, so he's hungry. And he sees a fig tree. You putting these two together? He came to it. Oh no, I made it big. And found nothing on it but leaves. And said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. 
What's God's opinion about trees that are acting like they're alive and yet, in fact, are not bearing fruit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, God has an opinion on the matter. You noticing that? Jesus seems to want us to notice this. Fig tree, fig tree, fig tree. Fig tree means figs. If there's no figs, it's taking up ground. Let's cut this thing down. Or, in this case, let's wither it. Now, what we don't see is the backstory in this. You know what's very possible is that Jesus had come through this same area for the last three years. And he'd been hungry. And he had come to that fig tree and it had offered nothing. Could be talking about that exact same fig tree as a symbol of something so that we would not miss it. Of course, we don't get the backstory. All we know is that God is just. God is merciful. God is patient. But for whatever reason, this fig tree isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be bearing figs. Finding something on the fig tree. Now, there's a character in the New Testament known as Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And he climbed up in a sycamore tree. I'm repeating the words of a little kid song for those of you that aren't familiar with it. He climbed up into a sycamore tree. Sycan in the Greek means fig. A sycamore tree in the Hebrew culture is different than a sycamore tree in America. A sycamore tree in the Hebrew culture is a fig tree. It has huge leaves and it has figs on it. Isn't that an interesting thought? So Zacchaeus climbs up into a sycamore tree, a fig tree. And so listen, listen to what it says in this line. It says, he was hungry. And, he, and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it. So look at my subtitle. Finding something on the fig tree. Jesus is just sort of making his way along and he looks up into a fig tree. The same thing he did before. And what was he doing? He was hungry, and he didn't find a fig. And in this situation, he finds the strangest thing. He finds a fig. It's certainly a funny-looking fig up there. But his name is Zacchaeus. He's in a fig tree, okay? So let's read the story. Now, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a fig tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Can't you just see it? I'm hungry. I need a meal. Zacchaeus, come down. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, you know, all the crowd around, you know, the ones that are very concerned about everything Jesus is doing, when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Because he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now that story might just sound like a nice, good Sunday school Bible story for you right now. But we're going to unpack it a little. Remember what the title of this message was? Power to Reconcile. What does that have to do with fig trees and little men? Well, it has a lot to do with it. 
And God is creating a language for us to use as an interpretive device to approach this story because God's the one that stuck that little short man in Scripture. You know, there's a lot of men that Jesus talked to, a lot of things that he did. And yet he says, bring over the cameras right here. Catch this moment right here. I even want intimate discussions between me and this wee little man. We even know exactly what this wee little man said to Jesus and what Jesus said to him. Why do we know that? Because it matters. Jesus finishes with, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Is that a key line in Christianity or what? Well, what's the context for it? A wee little man that was up in a fig tree. Power to reconcile. You see, what reconciliation is is something we need to walk through. Because once you begin to understand the global idea of how reconciliation works, what it is, you begin to realize what is taking place in this story. This is reconciliation between a little varmint sinner and big God. And Jesus is the instrument by which it takes place. In your life, you are a wee little varmint. And God is a big, holy God. And you're at enmity with him. You have no means of allowing him even into your house. You have nothing, actually, that could possibly satisfy him, do you? And yet, God is in the business of making whole that which is broken and finding that which is lost, reconciling sinners unto himself. Reconciliation, katalage, is our key Greek word for the day. Katalage. I'm going to give you, I think it's four definitions for it. But the first one is agreement of things seemingly opposite, different or inconsistent. So we have a wee little man who's a tax collector. He's greedy. He's wealthy. And you could say, well, Jesus is God. He's wealthy too. Yeah, but Jesus gave up everything and became poor. You see, Jesus isn't greedy. Jesus poured out everything he had. Jesus is the exact opposite of this wee little man. We're talking about Big God, wee little man, rich, willing to be poor of spirit. Then we have arrogant, proud, humble. We have opposites here. These two are not anything like each other. So now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So our first definition, agreement of things seemingly opposite, different or inconsistent. You see that Jesus is actually bringing about reconciliation between something wholly opposite of himself and that which he is. Which, by the way, is why all the crowd around was complaining. No, doesn't he realize that this man is a sinner? He can't just go into his house. Well, what do you think the story is for us? Doesn't God know that we're all sinners? He can't come into this house. He can't find satisfaction in us. He can't notice us. We deserve to be cut off. Exactly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him shall live. And that life will be everlasting life. You see, God is in the business of reconciling. Number two. So this is a definition for katalage, which is reconciliation. It also means opposing viewpoints coming to a point of understanding. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. 
and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So we have a wee little guy named Zacchaeus, and we have Jesus. And reconciliation is opposing viewpoints coming to a point of understanding. Zacchaeus is just intrigued. He's probably heard something about Jesus. And Jesus is coming along, but because he's short, he climbs up into the fig tree. But he wants to see Jesus. There's something that is moving within Zacchaeus, and it's the same thing that moves within us. It's a work of grace. It's like there's something that this man has. Find it. Figure out what it is. He's not expecting to be the host for Jesus any more than you are. He's just fascinated, and he can't see. But he's willing to do whatever it takes to get a view. So he climbs up into a fig tree. And Jesus has an agenda, just like he does in your life. And he looks up into that tree to a man who is fully stunned, to a crowd that is fully stunned, and says, Zacchaeus, come on down. Prepare your house for me. I'm coming over. Now, Zacchaeus could have said, you've got to be kidding me. You know what? You're some strange prophet. I'm not like you. I'm a chief tax collector. You're all pure and holy and prophetish. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I can feel conviction all over you. Just being within 20 feet of you right now, I feel uncomfortable. I'm not coming down. Have you ever responded to God that way? That's not how Zacchaeus responds. You see, what you have is an opposing viewpoints are coming to a point of understanding. And what does Zacchaeus do? So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. You know what? You are a little wee varmint. And you are very unlike Jesus Christ. And yes, being near him brings conviction. As you will soon see, Zacchaeus did get a full dose of it. And it changed his life. You see, God is in the business of altering the course of our existence. But to come down and to receive him joyfully means you give up life as you once knew it. You were a chief tax collector. You had a pretty good job in Israel. However, you can't continue to be a chief tax collector anymore because your job is at enmity with the pattern of the kingdom of heaven, the pattern of the one who is saying, I'm coming to your house today. Are you jumping down off that tree and saying, I'm available to you? I'm a fig. You made me for yourself. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. You see, this doesn't make sense to the world around, and in fact, let's just be honest, it probably doesn't make sense to us, the wee little varmint, either. It's like, uh, you want to come to my house? Don't you know who I am? Don't you recognize what I've done? I have violated everything in your kingdom. I am a sinner. I am lost. And he could say, I'm the son of man who has come to seek and save that which is lost. So the third definition of katalage, or reconciliation, is exchange of equivalent values, correcting the books, bringing balance to the scales. You know that Jesus brought balance to the scales? You know that you could not pay the debt that you owe, and Jesus paid it for you? You have to pay in perfect righteousness. That's the only way to access the holy presence of God, and yet there is one who paid that ransom for you, and his name is Jesus Christ. Luke 19, 8. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, 
I restore fourfold. Now, this message is going to start to cross over two planes. We have our relationship between us and God, and then we have our relationship between man and man, man and woman, woman and woman. In other words, human to human. And what we see is Zacchaeus is dealing with both planes here. You see, Jesus has come into his house, but to be right with Jesus, he also needs to deal with what he's done wrong with men. And so he has been a cheat. He has been a swindler. He was a chief tax collector, not just a tax collector. This little guy was like Scrooge McDuck sitting on piles of gold. He had worshipped the wrong thing. He had made the master of his life riches and wealth instead of the God of Israel, Jehovah. And God is correcting that. He's saying, Zacchaeus, I'm after you. And when he comes into his house, you can almost just feel the palpable conviction that Zacchaeus has. It doesn't say anything about Jesus saying, uh, so what are you going to do in response to this conviction? Zacchaeus knows what to do. Isn't that funny that we know what to do too? We know when Jesus is coming into our house, he's moving in and he's saying, get it right. Let's deal with these things. So, then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. Wow, that's a lot. And the fourth definition of reconciliation is adjustment of a difference. Reconciliation, restoration of health. If you've ever had a relationship that is just not healthy anymore, Remember those good old days when you used to have a healthy communication with them, you used to love to be around this person? Something has entered in. There's been an offense. Whether it was on their part or on your part, something is blockading your ability to just have right relationship with them. And as a result, it's strained, it's awkward, maybe it's non-existent. Well, one of the definitions of reconciliation is adjustment of a difference, reconciliation or restoration of health. It's a bringing back of health to something that has died. Look at Luke 19.9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. What does that mean to be a son of Abraham? That means he believed. The sons of Abraham are those that by faith have turned to the Messiah and said, This is my life. And Zacchaeus basically, as the action of his faith, has reconciled himself, not just unto man, but unto God, as an evidence or a fig evidence of the fact that there really is a repentance in this man's life. And Jesus notates that. He says, I see a fig. I see a fig on this fig tree. And this is what Jesus says. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Surely he is a fig tree. Oh, no, it says, because he also is a son of Abraham. Same concept. You see, he's demonstrating that his repentance is real. Something genuine is taking place within him. He doesn't just have some green leaves like, oh yeah, come on in, I'll give you some food. And Jesus is looking, and he's looking for a fig the whole while. But when he's looking for a fig with Zacchaeus, he finds one. And he sees repentance, and he says, truly salvation has come to this house today. Number five, the fifth definition of reconciliation, recovering a favor that was lost. You ever had it where you have favor in someone's eyes, but you blew it along the line somewhere and you lost it? Oh, it's a painful thing to realize that someone's favor has been lost. A good name has been forsaken. So in Luke 19, 10, it says, For the Son of Man was come to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, guess what? We've lost our favor with God. 
because of our sin. And yet, Jesus, in and through his cross, has recovered a favor that was lost. There's no way of you getting it. There's no way of you finding it. It's lost. However, due to the cross and due to the cross alone, you have access of a recovered favor with Almighty God. Let's go through how reconciliation works. Now, I know this is going to sound like an obvious thing based on the fact that I've been saying it over and over and over again throughout this message, but the cross is the key. If we remove the cross out of man's history, out of earth's history, did you know that we do not have reconciliation? You can say, well, that sounds like an extreme statement, Eric, because people have had fights and then have gotten over them and somehow they get along. No, that's pacification. That's not reconciliation. In other words, the fact that you've been able to come to an agreement that you're going to let things sort of lie, and it's still not a deep intimacy. In other words, God alone is the one that can bring back and restore an intimacy. You see, men, as long as we are left to our own devices and our selfish bents and our flesh, we destroy each other. We destroy relationships, and the longer we're in them, the worse they get. In other words, just give us time, and we'll find a way to hurt someone. We're just very good at it. The only way of reconciling that and changing the pattern is the work of Jesus Christ upon that cross. We can put up a front. Don't get me wrong. We can act as if everything's fine. It's like the classic People magazine thing when you're walking through the checkout line. And all these people whose lives are a wreck, it's always like, I'm doing really good now. I'm in a good place. Yeah, I love my life now that you know, I have a boyfriend again and I'm pregnant. You see, it's a temporal sense of health, and that's when they want to do the interview. They want to showcase to all the rest of us, look, you can live in sin and still be satisfied. You're not satisfied, and we know it. As Christians, we must know it. We must know the truth. There is only one thing that truly sets right the soul. There's only one thing that recovers the favor of God, and if you are on the outs with God, you are not satisfied in this life. Sin is satisfying for a season, but that season goes away far too soon. The cross is the key. I have a nice picture of a cross here for you, just in case you're wondering what I mean by cross. But I'm going to add some stuff to this picture. Alienated and cut off. When we sinned, there was a breach of our relationship with God Almighty. And so, when you turn off light, what reigns in a room? Darkness. When you remove life... What happens in the human body? All you have is death. You see, when we sinned, the Spirit of God was retracted from its original dwelling place, which is our bodies. God intended to dwell with men. However, He cannot dwell with sin. And as a result, when we sinned, when we transgressed the law, God's Spirit departed. Life departed. Death reigned. Light departed. Darkness reigned. So light and life are essential, but when they're removed, the opposite is there. You see, darkness and death are not the presence of something, they're the absence of God. We are alienated and cut off because of sin. And so here's our our picture. We have the sinner up there in the top left-hand corner, and then we have God the Father down there in the bottom right. There's no connection. Now, if I had You know, an in-between picture, there could be like some severing, like I have a cut in the paper and it's like separated, and then somehow the cross glues it back together. That would be a little more impressive. But what we have in between is a cross. The only hope for that sinner 
and God the Father to connect and to be reconciled. Look in the middle of that cross. You're going to see this. It's, it's red, even though you might not be able to see it from there. It's like this red, uh, I don't know what shape that is, sort of an oblong type of circle, a rectangular circle. I don't know. What do you call that thing? Uh, <clears throat> and it says reconciliation on it. You see, that's what the cross and the cross alone can do. But that cross symbolizes a person, not just a work. You see, the work of the cross is more than just a work or an event. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus Christ that we are saved. It is not just in the cross or in a cross beam or in two pieces of wood. It's what happened that day in a person. That person became sin for us. And as a result, a way was made that when we come to that person known as Jesus, we are then brought unto the Father. So let's study this a little closer. John 3.16, which is the scripture that I think most of us in here probably know fairly well. Uh, it's always hanging up in football stadiums uh, behind the, the goalposts. For God so loved the world. You see, we're cut off. But God at his initiation sought us out. And he made a way for us to return to life. He made a way for us to return to light. So that darkness and death would no longer reign in our mortal bodies. But that means of salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. And let me say that again just in case some of you think I'm, I didn't know what I was saying. There is only one way to the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. There is only one means of reconciliation unto Father God, and that is Jesus Christ. And yes, I am saying that every other religion that does not showcase a perfect alignment with the Word of God on that point is error, a lie, and wrong. I said it. I said it. I let it fly. Okay, so what we have is the sinner, by faith, is drawn unto Jesus, or we could say the cross. And when the sinner is wooed by faith, and they say, that, that cross, the work of Jesus Christ is my salvation, we have the first step forward in what we could call reconciliation. And God the Father is moved by love, for God so loved the world that he gave. So the Father's motivation isn't faith, it's love. God sent forth his son. He offered us the cross. And then we believe and that's what connects us. And so what we see is that faith must work. Remember what I said about the fig tree? Oh, we have some leaves here. All right, summer's coming. What is supposed to follow the greenness of the branch of the fig tree and the development of leaves, the budding forth of leaves? What is supposed to follow? Figs. You can come to Jesus Christ and then have that life choked out because you're unwilling to allow the furthering work of the spirit you see god doesn't just want us hanging out near a cross esteeming it we know how important it is but are we willing to allow that cross to do its work in us we cannot stay alive to our old life and still have a new life in christ jesus when we come to christ we must give up our previous life and so this is a strange statement, especially for those sensitized to the fact that we shouldn't do any work. There's no work, you know, for us to do. However, there is a work we're supposed to do. It's called the work of faith. Faith without works is dead. Good old passage of James there. And yet what, what many of us would think with that is like, well, well, what does that mean, though? I mean, that's not talking about actually like doing, like legalism. No, it's not talking about it. It's the work of faith, believing. This semester we'll go through 
how believing works. There's five aspects of believing. It's more than just knowing intellectually about something. It also then is reckoning, and then it is yielding our body unto Jesus Christ. If you believe this to be true, and you believe that he purchased your body on the cross, then give it to him. Well, we're like, well, I don't know if it has to go that far. Well, then you're not believing, because these are the figs. You see, if you're not producing figs, you don't have the real thing. The cares of this life are choking out the seed. You have the seed, but you're choking it. Because you're not in agreement with what the Spirit of God is desiring to do in your life. Faith must work. Faith, if you believe in the cross, let the cross take you where it needs to take you, which is to the Father. And so let's just begin to walk through the process of what we need to do to get to the Father. So what we see is the sinner has come to the cross by faith. God, the Father, in Jesus has come to the cross by love. And so the two have united at the cross. However, there's still a distance between them. And the Father has made a way. He has come to that point where he says, reconciliation is available. I have offered forgiveness at that cross. Therefore, there is no more barrier from the Father because of the shed blood of Jesus. You see, he's just waiting there at the point of reconciliation with open arms. And he's saying, come, come unto me. Wouldn't it be strange to get this far and not come unto Jesus? It's like, well, I believe that your cross work is sufficient for me. Isn't that enough? You know that there are certain scriptures that say repent and believe? There's other scriptures that say confess and believe and be saved. And there's other ones that say believe and be saved. Which one are you going to listen to? How about we listen to all three of them? In other words, what we have is faith is the main operative. Belief and faith are the same thing, by the way. They come from the same Greek root. One is a noun, faith. And the other is the action of that noun. When you are actively doing the faith, it's called believe. Okay, so when it says believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, I have faith in him. His work is your work. What he did was for you. So when you have faith, there's also sub-aspects of that faith that need to be realized or shown to prove that your faith is genuine. Faith must prove genuine faith. And so God's fruit watching. So they'll say, you're saying you're coming to the cross. You're saying you're believing. I'm looking for fruit. He's coming up to a fig tree saying, I see some green leaves. It's nice. It's a sign that fruit's supposed to be coming. Uh, where's the fruit? So we're going to talk about fruit. The first thing that must take place in our souls is what we could call humble understanding. Humble understanding. I'm wrong. I'm a rebel. I'm a wretch. I am the problem, not God. I've been mad at God when actually I'm the one that's creating all the problem in my life. Because when I'm not living in agreement with God, I'm allowing the enemy to have a heyday. This is actually me that is responsible. A humble understanding is a bending before God saying, God, you're right, and this is wrong. The way I've been behaving is wrong, but the way you have spoken in your word is right. And I've been in rebellion against it, and I humble myself before you now and say, this is the problem, not you. Okay, and what that leads the sinner to is what we could call the cross beam. You see, that cross beam is what stands between that sinner and full reconciliation with the Father. Okay, what we could call the figs. Faith must prove fruit. So we have five different, we could even call them fruits, or we could call them one big fig. 
But I think it's almost easier to look at them as five different figs. And this is what Jesus is looking for. Now, I don't want to catch you off guard in this message by not properly preparing you, because my goal isn't to just catch you off guard. But what we're walking through here in the sinner's relationship with God the Father is precisely the process we walk through with our relationships human to human. And so as we're going through this, I'm not wanting to just take you off guard by that. I want you to allow God to first deal with you and him. Because if you don't have this down between you and him, it doesn't really matter. You're going to stink at doing it between you and anyone else. You need Jesus Christ. You must be reconciled unto God the Father. This is imperative. But then we are entrusted with this ministry, this ministry of reconciliation in this earth. So what we have is five different fruits. The one on the far left is called godly sorrow. I'm going to walk through each one of these specifically so that we can fully understand them. The second one is repentance. The third one is confession. The fourth one is restitution. And the fifth one is patient grace. And like I said, I'll go through these. And you could say, well, that's, that's not necessary. That's like a bonus package. I would challenge you to go to scripture on this. And ask God if this is a bonus package or if it is actually the evidence that your life has been changed. If you don't have these five things, your life is esteeming Jesus. It's not in Jesus. When you're in Jesus, this is what happens. When you have come to Jesus and you have a humble understanding of what you've done and you truly own it, it changes you. There's two different kinds of sorrow. There's a worldly sorrow and there's a godly sorrow. Let's imagine that my mom says, Eric... Do not put your hand in that cookie jar. Those cookies are for special occasions, and it's only when I allow you to do it. So it's late at night, and I figure my parents are in bed, and I'm really hungry for a cookie. And so I sneak into the kitchen, and I very silently remove the lid, and I stick my hand in the cookie jar, and suddenly the light turns on. How am I feeling in that moment? I'm feeling shamefaced, embarrassed, caught, Guilty. Am I all those things? Absolutely. I am guilty. I have directly rebelled, disobeyed, shown disrespect and disregard to my parents' words. My hand is in the cookie jar, so any type of statement I could make in response is going to sound pathetic, and you even know that in the moment. So what comes out is something like, uh, what are you going to do to me? I, 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 you know, you have no defense. You're sort of wanting to plead mercy, but it's sort of a hard time to do that because your hand's stuck in there and you can't get it out. And so your mom grounds you for a week. And then you get frustrated and mad at your mother. Who's, who's the guilty party in this? You are. The little varmint that's sneaking into the cookie jar. However, who do you get mad at? You get mad at the lawgiver. Weak. I'm supposed to be down at the park tomorrow afternoon to play basketball with the guys. And what does your mom say? She doesn't seem to be very feeling about that. She says, well, you have to explain to them that you're not coming. You disobeyed and you stuck your hand in the cookie jar. Okay? But what we have is worldly sorrow. You see, the reason that you have sorrow is because you're going to miss playing basketball with your buddies tomorrow. You were humiliated. You were exposed as being a sneak and a cheat. Now your mom's trust in you has been blown. But that's why you're sorry. You're sorry because you got caught. Not because you have any intention to change. You see, you just need to get better at sneaking into the kitchen. Maybe not choose 10 o'clock at night, but 2 in the morning. 
when it's sure that your mom's going to be asleep. But you see, you still have the root problem in your soul. Rebellion. And as long as that remains, you are at enmity with your God. You see, if you could go through the rest of your life and never be caught again by your mother, but you sneaked cookies for the rest of your life in rebellion, I don't know why it really matters that when you're 90, you're still sneaking cookies. Uh, It's a strange relationship you have with your old, old mother. (laughs) But the point being, the root problem was never excavated out of your heart. And as a result, there is a hindrance in your walk with God because of this. And there is no reconciliation. So we have godly sorrow, repentance, which is a turning. I'll go through these. Confession. Isn't it funny to see confession on here? I've had this thought many times in my life. Why does it matter if I say something with my mouth? It just seems like an unnecessary thing to throw in. I would like to declare that I believe the tongue to be the signal of conquered territory. Whoever holds this territory, known as the body, holds the tongue. And the tongue is the first sign or the first fruits. It's almost like the flag of the standards set on the high hill. When someone conquers territory, they stick a flag on the hill to say, we own this territory. When God conquers territory, or let's say it this way, when Satan conquers territory, what does he evidence it through? Through the tongue. And it says in James that our tongues are set on fire by the fires of hell. You see, we are conquered territory. We are of the enemy's kingdom. How do we prove it? By our tongue. And yet, when we come to the kingdom of heaven, when we turn our lives unto Jesus, what does he grab first? The tongue. And he says, let's do some talking of the right nature. I want you to confess what is wrong, and I want you to confess what you believe. You get it out. And what happens is you end up fortifying this newly claimed territory. Confession is huge. Even though it doesn't seem like it should matter, what is happening with the tongue is a symbol of occupation within our souls and our bodies. Restitution, which I'll go through, it means to make right or to pay back that which was stolen. And patient grace. I'll just leave that one for a bit and we'll get to it. The ministry of reconciliation. What it says in scripture is that we have a ministry. Now, some of you have been wanting a ministry, you've been praying, God, could you give me a ministry? And God says, oh, you have one. You're like, what? The ministry of reconciliation. Like, ah, it doesn't sound very fun. We have a ministry of reconciliation. I'm going to sort of walk us through how this ministry functions, but it's like a job. It's the way we as Christians function. But if, how in the world are you going to have a ministry of reconciliation if you yourself aren't reconciled? Do you see a problem in that? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. So how did God reconcile himself to us? Through Jesus Christ. You see, the means by which the Father reconciled was Jesus Christ. Have you ever had the thought that, well, God can forgive. He can do whatever he wants. So why does he just reconcile us without Jesus? Why does he need to send his son? Well, you need to understand how the law works and how justice works and how wrath works. You see, justice still had to be satisfied. God's a holy, holy, holy God. And we're an unholy, holy, unholy, unholy, unholy people. He can have no relation with us. He can have no fellowship with us. There's a cutting off. We're dead. He's living. We're dark. He's light. However, through the cross, he has made a way. And as we go through other messages this semester, you begin to recognize the profoundness of the work of the cross in relationship to the law to righteousness, to holiness, to purity, all the things that we do not natively have. 
and how Jesus has made a way to invite us into the presence of the Father. So it says, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, most of us are not too appreciative about that. Like, oh, thank you, I got a ministry. But he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Who's the word of reconciliation? Who's the word, the logos? Well, that's Jesus. And so we've been given the word of reconciliation, the word that accomplishes reconciliation. That's, that's how it works. The, the word confession actually means homologeo, which is two different words. Homa, which is H-O-M-O, which means of like kind or in like stride. And then homologeo, which is from the word logos, the word, the scriptures. And so homologeo, what confession is, is to, like watching someone in a mirror. Like Jesus walks this way, we move with him. And we say, whatever you do, I agree with. Whatever you say, I say is true. And we confess it with our mouth. He's right. Where he's going is true. Where I violate that and where I go a different direction from where he's moving, I'm wrong. Confession of sin, then a confession of faith. But this God is able to keep me from falling. He is able to supply me with the grace to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. So he hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though, God did, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We are to be reconcilers. So, here we're going through this process of first of examining, are we bearing fruit? If God were to come to us and stand before our tree today... Would he find figs? Now, many of you in here are sort of thinking of that one parable where the guy said, how about we take another year and add some fertilizer? Which is why God gives that statement, because that's exactly what God wants to do. The fact that you desire fruit is a certain sign of God's mercies, because he is going to bring that fruit. God isn't going to wither you. God desires to see fruit born. However, I want you to take the seriousness of this. Jesus is hungry. And he wants to come up to his people, his church. And there's something that we are supposed to be bearing. And that's real figs. We are to be reconcilers. But first, to be a reconciler, we must be reconciled. It's sort of that same concept of take the plank out of your eye so that you can see clearly to help remove the speck from someone else's. Don't try and be a reconciler if you still need to be reconciled. To be prepared as a minister of the gospel or a minister of reconciliation, which, by the way, is the gospel, you need to see clearly to do it, which means God needs to deal with first things first. First, you start bearing fruit, and then you can show fruit to the people you're talking to, saying, see, this is what it looks like. It's figs like this. So here's our picture. The sinner has come unto God the Father in Jesus Christ in and through the cross, and they are brought together because the Father in Christ is able to forgive. And then we, through our humble understanding, our godly sorrow, our repentance, our confession, our restitution, our patient grace, are able to walk in that amazing and profound relationship with God that we were cut off from. Patient grace, by the way, in a relationship with God is when... See, you're reconciled unto God in Christ Jesus. However, you're still here. 
And there's still a passing of time that is needed. And God says this is where it requires endurance and perseverance. We must have a grace to persevere in this relationship that we have with God. That even though we don't see face to face, we have a grace. And to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And so that's part of the patient grace, which will actually make even more sense when we talk about it human to human. You must personally have a working faith in order to call someone else to a working faith. Following the pattern, what works between God and man works between man and man. So let's go through the same pattern, but let's begin to break it down in our own human relationships. Because this ministry is how we live. You actually have been given everything you need to thrive in the arena of reconciliation. Probably every single one of us in here has certain relationships in our life where there's distance, where there is awkwardness. And you are responsible to do your part in showing Jesus in that. You cannot be responsible for someone else's part. You can pray for them, but you cannot do their work for them. For instance, what you see in God the Father reconciling us unto himself and through his Son is God does his part, of course, He then woos us to do our part. But the classic statement would be, which is just true, is we still have a part. Whether or not, you know, we're going to have to all agree God's still helping us with our part and giving us grace to even be awakened and have a humble understanding. Who moves us to godly sorrow? Praise Jesus. He does. Who enables us to repent? Thank you, Jesus, for your grace to even help me do that. However, we still must do something. Following the pattern. So here we have the offender which could be you, but oftentimes the very first way we're going to look at this message is we're going to think of someone else up there, and down in the right-hand corner, the offended, we're the white one. See, the top one is like all dark and sooty, and the one in the bottom is, of course, that's us. We're the offended. How dare they? Okay, now, you notice that we're cut off from the offended? I mean, the offender and the offended are cut off from each other. However, there's one means of bringing them back together and truly establishing life. And that is the cross. So the offender must come to the cross by faith. How does the offended come to the cross? Not just by love because they don't have love in and of themselves. We come to the cross by faith as well. However, the fact that there are two Christians in this story doesn't necessarily mean that there's reconciliation, as can be testified by most of us in here. That a lot of times those that have hurt us and those that we have a breach of relationship with are probably Christians. Okay, so just because you have two Christians doesn't mean that there's reconciliation. Because both of those Christians have to still do more than just come to the cross. The fact that you come to the cross means that there's an avenue made available for reconciliation. There should be no impediment between Christians. However, we have impediments. So that's why this message is important. Let's allow God to search us and to try us. And where we are responsible to move towards reconciliation, let's do what we are supposed to be doing. So here is the offender and the offended, both at the cross, but still seemingly miles away from each other. One in their offense is not offering forgiveness. Down there, the offended, see, he's not offering forgiveness. And the offender has no humble understanding of what they did. Now, most of us that are not offering forgiveness are waiting for the offender to catch the drift. Have you not figured it out yet, oh, you offender, 
that once you do all of this, then I will graciously consider offering you forgiveness. You see, that's our leverage, and we hold it just sort of like in stock in our, in our, in our satchel. Our forgiveness is our strength in the negotiations, and so we hold it back off the table. I mean, a good businessman, a negotiator knows that you have to hold back your strengths. However, what does God do? He gives up his strength. He lays it out on the table and says, my forgiveness is available to you in the sun. You turn to the cross, and I guarantee you, you have what you ask for. You will have salvation. Is that the way you're handling the offenses in your life? Are you coming coming to them in the person of Jesus Christ and saying, the forgiveness is there? Open doors, open arms. I have the ministry of reconciliation, and it's my desire to reveal Jesus Christ in the kingdom of heaven in and through our relationship. You can't make them come through that crossbeam. And that's one of the challenges of being the offended. But you must do your part. If there still isn't a relationship and yet you're forgiving, you're still resembling Jesus in your life. Do you know that Jesus is forgiven? You know, that doesn't mean that everyone has come down through that crossbeam and reconciled with him. He still did his work, okay? And we still see glory in and through it. So what we need is the offended must come with forgiveness. Now, if any of you are needing a deeper understanding of forgiveness, the message power to forgive is a must. I would highly encourage you to go through the message power to forgive because it gives the nuts and the bolts of how forgiveness works. And it starts with the premise that you can't forgive the way God forgives. It's a premise point. It's a humble understanding of I can't do this. However, we forgive in Jesus. When you know your position, by the way, students, what is your position? When you are in Christ, then you have the forgiveness of sins. Not just for your own sins, but you have power to forgive others. Because God equips you. It just comes with the package. It's in Christ. In that cross, we have what we need to function as God is commissioning us to function. So, the offender needs something. We can call it humble understanding. Okay, let's... Let's go to the marriage relationship. There's a lot of different relationships that we could touch on with this. Marriage is one that needs the ministry of reconciliation hour by hour. See, some of you in here might need this right now just because of the nature of your life. You know, maybe once a week, maybe once a month. When you're in marriage, I tell you what, wow. Uh, You see, men and women are different. Has anyone ever taught you guys that? In the public school system, don't they tell you that they're the same now? Isn't that what's taught? So that's why I'm clarifying. Very different. And a woman is known as the weaker vessel. I know that really sounds like a great statement. I'm not the one coming up with it. But there's, there's something in a woman that responds to certain situations different than a man does. And so, say for instance, I'm talking with Leslie, and I use a harshness in my tone. Now, to me in my mind, it wasn't that big of a deal. However, Leslie grows silent all of a sudden. And as a man, I can sort of pick up on that vibe. It's the silent vibe. Uh, I don't know what to call it, but there's an offense. Now, here's the typical thing that I could do. I have done. Is there something wrong? What's going on? As if I don't know. However, what I'm thinking in my mind as the offender is that was not a big deal. Okay? Could you just move past this? And then she'll say something like, that, that hurt me. And then I'll say, what? And she'll clarify what it was. And then what's my response? 
My response could be all over the map. However, let's give a typical guy response. You know, I didn't mean it that way. You see, is that a humble understanding? When God convicts us, and he says, that. That is breaking relationship between you and me. Imagine if I said, I didn't mean it that way. Does that solve the issue? You see, I have no understanding of the sinfulness of sin. I don't understand the breach that I'm creating. I don't understand that I've wounded someone. I'm self-justifying. And as a result, there is no reconciliation. You see, when a man responds with a lacking of acknowledgement to his wife who has been wounded by a simple word, and here's what we as men will oftentimes say. It says in the Bible, you need to forgive. Okay, you're, you're holding on to this. You need to let this go, okay? We could just move on with our day if you could just get past this. Some of the men in here are like, why in the world is he using this illustration? <laughs> but that's what we do. You see, there's a problem, and we don't recognize that we're begging them to forgive when we are not even coming to the table with a humble understanding. We have no godly sorrow over the fact that instead of caring for our wife, instead of treating her with understanding, living with her in an understanding way, we are hindering her and actually stumbling her soul and then asking her to be a Christian when we're not willing to be. Something is wrong in this picture. And yet that's the reason why if you do not have healthy reconciliation practices in your marriage, why things come up from 10 to 15 years ago or 20 to 40 years ago, depending on how long you've been married. And suddenly your wife will whip out this doozy of something that happened, I mean, in the dark ages. You think, what does that have to do with anything? But wives have linked things. This goes back to this, which goes to this, and then that goes all the way back to that. And all you said was, yeah, I need to get through and brush my teeth. But you said it in that tone. And that tone is reminiscent of this tone, which then links to this tone, which then goes right back to when you were first married and you did that. And as a result, you're saying, I can't. you're still harboring unforgiveness. You know what your wife is harboring? Which I know, she shouldn't be harboring anything. You know, what, you know what she's struggling with? She's struggling with an unreconciled fault that was never properly dealt with in your relationship. And as a result, it's still there. So when certain things get touched, it like transfers a pain through some nervous system. It's not that your wife probably is desiring to remember that any more than you are desiring to hear it. But when you process through things properly, it removes these things from your relationship. And actually, that which the enemy meant for evil strengthens your intimacy. But we have not been trained as the body of Christ how to handle these moments. And as a result, as men, we shrug our shoulders with sort of an arrogance like, you need to get over this. And then our wives look at us like, I don't know what to say back. Something's wrong with the way this man is functioning. And you're trying to think through chapter and verse in the Bible going, I know they're doing something because I'm offended by it. They are doing something. You see, what as a woman, and this goes both ways, okay, but I'm using this illustration because I'm a man. What a woman is needing is to know that the man understands. Where does that come from? It comes from God. You know what God is desiring? Do you understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin? Do you understand that you've stood against me, that you have spat upon my face? You see, it's not just because God has some ego. It's because God wants to save us. And he knows that for right relationship, there needs to be a correction. 
You see, there is purposeful things and there are things that are done that we don't recognize. Like say I'm walking you know, out today and I accidentally you know, swing my hand like this and hit you in the nose. Okay, now that would seem pretty obvious to me that I've done something, but imagine that I'm completely oblivious to it. And you're like, how dare he? Okay, but I'm ignorant of it. Well, it's going to be sort of hard for us ever to have reconciliation because I don't even know to come to you. There's no understanding. Okay, but imagine that Sandy comes up to me because she witnessed it as I was walking by, and she said, sort of awkward for me to tell you this, Eric, but I think you hit so-and-so in the nose when you were walking out. I'm like, what? Suddenly a humble understanding is awakened, and what do I feel? I'm like horrified. I'm horrified that I accidentally hit you in the nose. And so what do I do? Do I say, well, they should just get over it. If they're going to make a big deal out of that, they have issues. <laughs> that doesn't solve anything. And now for the rest of our relationship, I'm sort of frustrated with them that they're making an issue out of it and telling other people about it. And they are thinking, you know what? He even knows about it. And he never even made it right. I know Sandy talked to them. I know other people probably mentioned it to him. He has never come to me and made it right. And as a result, we have an impairment in our relationship. And there's a distancing. Imagine that you came up to me and punched me in the nose. Okay, I'm just using this sort of nose thing here, I know. But you punched me in the nose. And imagine that you said, I'm sorry. Okay? And you walked off. Now, I'm a very... I'm very generous with my forgiveness. It's, it's, I don't hold grudges. I'm not a, I'm not a guy that does that very uh, quickly. In fact, I don't do it. But at the same time, there would be a breach in our relationship. And you could say, why? Because you're not forgiving, Eric? No, it has nothing to do with forgiveness. But I'm not going to stick you in a leadership position at Ellerslie if you just keep coming up to me and punching me in the nose and saying, I'm sorry. You see, you are proving through your lack of repentance that there's something out of order in your soul. Repeat offense actually is demonstrating a lack of fruit, a lack of figs. And so as a result, there is not a reconciliation in the sense of trust and commonality of purpose. What there is is a distance, not a bad distance per se, in other words, on my part. However, if you're punching, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to move back past the range of where your fist can reach. And then if you grow your arm longer, what am I going to do? I'm going to continue to detach myself. That's how relationships work. If you get hurt by being close, what do you do? You distance yourself. And what happens in marriage? What happens in family? If there is hurt that you have, you will naturally begin to pull back. So, as we're going through this, depending on which way you look at it, like I said, you could be looking at it from both sides of this. Most of us are the innocent, offended party as I'm going through this. We're like, oh, those people. However, I want you to equally share and allow God to convict you where necessary to show you that we are always having to deal with both sides of this. There are people that will offend you, and there's people that you may offend. And in both situations, it's the cross that is the key. So when the offender has a humble understanding and then is moved unto godly sorrow because of that humble understanding, what should they do? If they really have a godly sorrow, what would be the natural flow? They would repent. It would be completely ridiculous to have a humble understanding, to have a godly sorrow that breaks you down to your knees and then just go back and do the same thing? No. You would repent. And then you would come up to them and you'd make it very clear. What I did was wrong. 
It's called confession. Restitution. If you stole, what would you do? You'd pay it back. Wouldn't it be a little strange if they said, sorry, I stole $100 from you this morning. And then had a godly sorrow, cried about it, said, I won't do it again. And even said it with their mouth and then kept the $100? Huh. That's a little awkward. That's because it's wrong, and we all know it. You see, restitution is a necessary part. If I slandered your name, and then I was awakened to it by the Spirit of God that I was speaking, tr- I was speaking falseness about you, and I was undermining your character to others, and I was saying things that actually diminished who you were in their eyes, and I had godly sorrow, I repented, I even made it clear with God, and maybe I even came up to you and said, I have misused this tongue, and I have harmed you, and I've said false things about you. What should you do? You should go to the people that you spoke false things about them to and speak true things. You need to make things right. You cannot just sit on that past behavior and act like, oh, well, it's all covered in the blood of Jesus. Because you're stretching a concept. You need to recognize that God clears debts by actually paying them. And in human relationships, there is a real sense of equity. And in a relationship with a spouse, if you have spoken harsh words, what should you do? Don't just repent and try not to speak at all. Speak words of life. Do the opposite. Begin to build where you've been tearing down. Let's do the right things. So we have godly sorrow, repentance, confession, restitution, and patient grace. Now, I think I'm just about to walk through all these. Yes. Understanding the cross beam. Okay, the cross beam is that one bar across the middle with the five things on it. A closer examination of the five fruits of faith. The first fruit is godly sorrow. Now, what does godly sorrow look like? In my, I don't want to call it a business, in my work, in this ministry, but not just this one at Ellerslie, just everywhere I go, I deal with these sorts of things. I deal with sorrow or people being sorry. And because a lot of things that I'm dealing with are touching people and it's invoking a response. And I've had a lot of people say things to me and I've witnessed and I've been a part of or a mediator of a lot of meetings where someone is seeking an apology. You know what an apology is? It's basically a reason or an excuse for behavior. And so I would prefer, even though it's... even. It's not the most appropriate concept for what we do as Christians. We don't make an excuse for behavior because what we have a tendency to do is like if you came up to me and punched me in the nose and then I came to you and I said, is there anything wrong? You know, because a punch in the nose is probably not the healthiest behavior. He said, yeah, I just, I was up really late last night. I've just been going through a tough time. And see, what are you doing? You're placing your behavior and you're putting blame on situations in your life Instead of calling it what it is. It's called sin. You see, when you misbehave and you allow this body to be wielded by the flesh or the devil, you are sinning. And so to call sin a sin, if you tell something or you say something that's false, our first reaction is to try and justify why we said it. Oh, we didn't mean it that way. When in actuality, we did mean it that way. We're trying to come up with a cloak and an escape hatch To get away from the fact that we lied. Because in the Bible it says that liars go to hell. So we didn't do that. You know what? Let's call sin what it is. And that is a sign of figs in our soul. 
This is wrong. Godly sorrow. What does it sound like? Well, I don't want you to parrot these words. I'm just saying there's a lot of sorrow in the church that is people being sorry for being caught. And they'll just try not to get caught next time. I'm sorry. Yeah, I punched people. I just forgot that you were the pastor here and I punched the wrong guy. I punched you and now it's a big deal. If you're punching anyone, it's a big deal, okay? I don't want you just to be sorry because you got caught. Is there godly sorrow? Wow, I really did mess things up. I wouldn't blame you for cutting me out of your life. I understand why this brought you pain. I ache just thinking about what I've put you through. That's godly sorrow. Some of us may not know. We may not have an understanding of what we've done to God. We may not have an understanding of what we've done to people. When we come to the Spirit of God, you know what he'll begin to do? He'll begin to make those things clear so that we can have a godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Listen to this line. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There's two kinds of sorrow. There's godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow. The sorrow of the world produces death. Why? Because it doesn't save you from your sin. You continue to be a repeat offender because you are now just trying to moderate your behavior, alter your behavior so you're not caught again, so that it does not inconvenience someone else. The man who is caught staring at something on his computer screen that he's not supposed to. And when his wife catches him, and he does not show a humble understanding to the fact that he has violated the covenant, he has stabbed her in the heart, made her feel unlovable and unlovely, and all he says is, yeah, I was just going through a tough time. You see, what that leads to is an impediment and a barrier between the couple. There's a break of trust, And now there's a pulling away because there's no humble understanding and there's no godly sorrow. But when a man actually begins to recognize what he's doing, if by the grace of God he sees it, and he just relives that situation in his mind and he can get inside and feel the heart and the wound of his wife and recognize it's like, God, the problem isn't my wife. The problem isn't how busy I've been in life. The problem isn't because I'm a man. The problem is sin. This is a sin, and if this sin continues, it's going to kill my marriage, me, my kids, my relationship with you. This has to stop, and you begin to feel a godly sorrow brewing in your soul. God, what must I do to be saved? I'm wrong. This is wrong. No more justifications. Sin is sin. Pray God for a godly sorrow. Pray God for a humble understanding that you could bear fruits. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. Listen to this. When you are sorrowing in a godly manner, there's a diligence that's produced in you. It's like, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And you can tell. I've been around people that are just like, I don't know what. I need to do to make this right, but I'm asking God to show me. And you actually come up to people, is there anything I can do to make this right? You see, it says, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. 
In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. What can I do, God? I robbed from them falsely. I'll repay it back fourfold. I will make this right. You see, Zacchaeus had that. It was a godly story. He says, I don't care what I have to do. I want the Son of Man to remain in my house. Whatever I need to do, I am making my life right because I want to stay with this guy. This is life. Number two, repentance. Repentance is a turning. There's all sorts of variations on how you could look at it. But basically, it's like heading over a cliff and then repenting would be turning a different direction. It's changing your mind about a behavior. In other words, a humble understanding is an awakening to say, that behavior is wrong. And if it's wrong, I cannot participate in it any longer. So you're literally changing your disposition towards something and altering your course because of it. This is what a repentant man or woman might say. That's it. I am not living this way anymore. I'm saying goodbye to this way of living. And then look where their confidence lies. In Christ. In Christ, I am a new creature. And I reckon this ungodly fleshly behavior dead and buried in him. And therefore, it is now considered past tense. So what you see is, you see a confession of faith and sin. A confession of sin. A confession of sin that this is wrong. This must stop. This is at enmity with God. And then, in Christ, I have what I need. Fruit number three, confession. I agree with God. My behavior was wrong. Now imagine if someone came up to you and said something like this, as opposed to, I'm sorry, okay. Can we just move past this? There's a huge difference. I agree with God. My behavior was wrong. My behavior was not in agreement with God and was harmful, disrespectful, and dishonoring toward you. I acknowledge with my tongue that what I did was deserving of a cutting off. I'm in Christ, and now by God's grace, I have the power and the ability to properly walk out this relationship moving forward. See, what you have in a confession is not just a confession of sin, but you have the confession of how you are going to walk this out. Your confidence doesn't lie in your ability to amend your behavior. It lies in the power of God to change your behavior. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and shall believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead... Thou shalt be saved. Remember where it says, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved? And we're like, so it's as simple as that, believing. It is as simple as that. But a sub-work of believing is confession. So what you see here is it says, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart of man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You see... When God is taking claim to this body, confession is part of it. This is how it works. You take a stand and you declare within your soul the position you have in Christ. First, that was wrong. God is right. Your behavior was wrong. And God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Number four, restitution. Making things right. If you stole... You pay it back, plus interest. If you burned a man's fields, what should you do? Replant them for him. If you stole a pig, give back the pig, plus the little piglets. In other words, you give back plus. 
You give back even with interest. You do not just give back the $100 bill all torn up two years later. It's like, yeah, I found this. Sorry, I stole it from you. If you're saying, what must I do to show Jesus in this? Where I showed the devil and taken it, how would Jesus give it back? I don't know what that would look like, but it'd probably have a little more hullabaloo about it than just giving, up, giving back a ripped up $100 bill. I really did hurt you. I want to make this right. I want to correct that which I did wrong. I own my mistake. If I stole, I will pay back with interest. If I slandered, I will clarify the truth to those I spread false words to. Whatever is necessary to make this wrong right, I will do. This relationship is too valuable to me to allow any stone to remain unturned, any debt unpaid, or any wrong not made right. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain, standing grain of the field is consumed, listen to this line, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. The concept in Exodus of reconciliation is very clear in the law of how a man makes things right. It's sort of like eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You see, there's a sense of equity in God's kingdom. The amazing thing about the cross is Jesus gave up his eye, even though we hurt his. Jesus gave up his tooth, even though we were the violators. It was his body that was given in exchange for ours. It's an amazing statement. However, how we flesh that out is we say, whatever needs to be taxed in my life to make these things right that I've wronged, we're willing to do. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. It's called restitution. Number five, patient grace. This is possibly one of the most important. Let me go back to marriage. I know many of you in here are not married. However, it's one of the best illustrations of how this works. If I have hurt Leslie, it's usually shown in the fact that she begins to pull away and get quiet. Okay, there's certain signs, and women know how to speak without speaking. Leaving a room and the door closes a little more firmly than it's ever closed before, because it must be just wind. And usually as the husband, you know when it's not just wind. And so there's been some kind of violation in the relationship. So imagine that... I don't even have an understanding of what I did, and I just want to get past it. So I do the classic man thing, and I'm like, so what's, what's the issue? All right? I didn't mean that. You're taking my words way too specifically. Okay, what I meant was this. And she's thinking, but you didn't say that. You see, I'm not taking ownership for the fact that I hurt her. I'm just wanting to get past the situation. I have a worldly sorrow towards my wife's hurt. I don't care. I just want to get past it. It's inconveniencing me. Does that sound like Jesus? Hmm. You see, a man is supposed to be unto his wife the way Jesus is unto the church. Wow. So you know what I'm supposed to have in this situation? I'm supposed to have an understanding. And say, you know what? I'm called to protect you. I'm called to guard you. I'm called to treat you and live with you in an understanding way. The way Christ would with his bride. I haven't done that in this situation. And in my mind, it might say, that was hardly anything that I did. No, no, I'm not going to go there. What I say is, I'm going to own this. Okay? I recognize that what I just did hurts you. I'm not going to make some excuse for it at that exact moment, which is something like, you know, I, 
I don't think it's actually that big of a deal, but you don't throw in those lines. You own it. This was sin. It was a violation of my position in your life. You need to feel safe around me, not as if I'm going to harm you with my words. And I do not want to speak nicer to anyone else in the world than I do you. I want you to get my best, not my worst. Jesus gives us his best, not his worst. And so, what happens with patient grace? Now, let's imagine that I have hurt Leslie, and there's a pulling away. And I spoke some things that were not good, they were mean, or they were harsh. And I can even reason in my mind, if someone spoke those words to me, I'd be fine. That's not the way you live in an understanding way with your wife. And so what I do is imagine that I walk through that crossbeam and I have a godly sorrow. I repent and I say, this changes. I'm changing in this. I'm going to take my words very seriously. The way I'm speaking to you matters. And I just want you to know that I am, I'm on call. You can bring up this moment in the future and say, Eric, do you remember you said that your tone actually does matter to you? Oh, yeah. It does. And imagine that I confess it with my mouth. And imagine that I start speaking words of life. So what's my expectation? I move in for the kiss. I'm like, so we're fine now, right? And what does my wife do? She says, not yet. I'm like, what? Okay, this is, again, classic man territory. Because there's something else that is needed. And we're going to call it patient grace. You see, when a man has hurt a woman... And then he desires intimacy with her instantaneously. The woman can oftentimes feel obligated, but she has a need for something to return to the relationship. And that is trust. In other words, there needs to be a processing of what is happening and then an actual bearing of fruit in the man. You see, a man to just make something clear and say, look, everything's fine now. I've done everything I'm supposed to. Remember that cross beam that Eric was talking about? I went through it. And she could say, there's one more thing on that list, and it's patient grace. I just need you to be patient with me, because I really do appreciate everything you're saying to me. And I really want there to be a full recovery of our intimacy and this trust. But could you be patient with me to walk through this unto a full recovery? You know what? Your wife is very capable of saying to you as a man, I'm ready. I see the fruit in your life, and I actually do feel safe around you now. You see, this is something that's been violated. Now, this isn't just marriage. This is any relationship. Now, patient grace. Listen to the language associated with patient grace. I recognize that I broke trust. And I recognize that trust is not rebuilt overnight. I'm willing to patiently walk this out with you. I will not press you to trust me beyond whatever trust level you are ready to give. I realize that this will be a process of recovering trust and confidence in the genuine nature of my repentance. Please know that I am so blessed by your willingness to walk this through with me and not completely cut me off. I commit to being sensitive to the healing of your soul in this process. I officially want to switch from being a problem in your life to a helper in your life. There are certain things that as spouses we've done that might fall into the category of extreme. Extreme hurt. Extreme pain. And as a result, when we begin to make these things right, you need to also be patient in the process of seeing that trust restored. If a man goes out and forgets his vow of covenant and violates that relationship and then comes back, even sorrowful, he also needs to understand 
that there's a very real human on the other side of this equation that feels. And there is real hurt. There is real blood that has come out of wounds. And so in this process, he needs to go through that crossbeam, but that final piece is of the utmost importance to say, I understand that technically you shouldn't even walk away from me. But I am going to say to you that I understand that, and I'm going to be as sensitive as I need to be in this process, and I'm not going to rush you. I just want you to know that when you're ready, I'm here. I just want to wash your feet in the meantime in any way I can. So this repentance is real. I'm turning away from that. I don't deserve your mercy. I don't deserve you at any level. But if you will give me a chance, I want to allow God to work in and through me and to bear some figs to show you that this is a real change. The glory ding. You know, like in a boxing match, ding, ding, ding. There's a ding in the, in the universe, you could say, in the purposes of God. Hitting the sweet spot of God's purpose and thusly his glory. What's the ding? This. You see, that cross has accomplished something. And when we come to the cross and we come to God the Father and we are reconciled, it's like in the heavenlies, ding, 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 ding. That's what God is after. You see, it's not just having us look to the cross. It's having the cross do its work in us to bring us unto a whole relationship with the Father. And in our relationships with each each other, it's not just being Christians in the same building. It's the glory ding. Ding, 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 where the body of Christ is the body of Christ ought to be. I have a lot of relationships in my life that when I take this message, I sort of ache inside. And I say, God, what am I supposed to do? I have people that I've forgiven, but people that do not have any humble understanding of what they've done. So do I forget what they did? Because I'm ready to do that, but I I don't trust them. (laughs) Last time I was around them, they stuck a dagger in my back. Do I just go out of my way and just hang out with them now? And act like, oh, that's no big deal. These are hard issues. However, we can understand that God doesn't just come down and act like there's no issue with us. Did you know that he does have an issue? And unless we actually do have a godly sorrow and a repentance, we are still removed from that grace of reconciliation. It is important what we're talking about today. So let's talk about the minister of reconciliation. You could say, well, that's me. Because isn't it my ministry? I'm going to talk about the minister of reconciliation. You you have someone living inside of you when you're a Christian. And his name is the Holy Spirit. You know who has the ministry of reconciliation? It's the Holy Spirit. He takes from the work of the cross and brings it to you, and then he brings it through you to others. But who's the one doing the work? It's him. It's God. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is God. And so God is actually the one with the ministry. We're the house for it. We're the ones that agree with the ministry and allow him to carry it out in us. He's entrusted this ministry to us, which is called himself. His work on the cross. And we are changed by it. And then he brings us to that place where we are made ready to go unto others and bring them unto a reconciled relationship with Jesus Christ. The responsibility of the two parties, the offender and the offended. Each of us needs to appropriate this message from the place that we are at. Because you could say, well, who's responsible for initiating the reconciliation? The offender or the offended? And I would, say, I would say this. If you're the offender, you initiate. Why? Because it's you. You know what you need to do. 
If you're the offended, you initiate. You do what is, whatever is necessary to forgive and to make your life available for the step forward of reconciliation. Wherever you are at in this picture, if in certain situations in this, this message, you could be the offender and you could be the offended. You know, in most situations, you're both. You've been offended, but you've also been an offender in the same circumstance. Now, there are circumstances where literally you are literally just the offended and someone else has just come out of nowhere and done some damage to your life. However, for the most part, we share in culpability in most circumstances. Christianity, being forgiving and being forgivable. You know, someone that is the offended, we need to learn how to be forgiving. And I highly encourage you to ask God and to seek out God on that point. If you're struggling with unforgiveness, it's a huge breach in your soul. And I would encourage you to listen to the message, Power to Forgive. But forgiving is one side of the equation. The other side is we need to be forgivable. In other words, we have to walk through that process where someone else isn't stumbling over our lack of understanding of the grievance that has taken place. And when we are forgiving and forgivable, you know that marriage thrives? You know that relationship in the church of Jesus Christ thrives? You know that relationship in families thrives? It's a great secret right there. Christianity. So there's our picture. And what's at the center of it is reconciliation. Listen to our final statement. If it be possible as much as lies in you, Live peaceably with all men. As far as it lies in your camp, in your place of responsibility before the throne of heaven. It says, God, I got a lot of people out there that I'm not necessarily close to right now. And as far as it depends on you, you bear the Holy Spirit in the ministry of reconciliation and you carry forth the power of the cross. You're not responsible for their reaction to it, but you are responsible for your response to that cross and the truth of the kingdom of heaven. The parable of the fig tree. Don't just bear leaves. Bear fruit. And if you are just a leafy tree right now, hanging out in the church of Jesus Christ, I want you to ask God for a humble understanding of the exceeding sinfulness of sin so that you would have a godly sorrow and you would have the repentance of God worked in you and you would prove with that repentance fruit that you would confess with your mouth both your sin and your faith in Christ Jesus. And that you would make restitution for that which you have done wrong. And that you would allow a patient grace to grow in you. That you live in an understanding way with those around you. And even those that have hurt you or those you've hurt. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.